the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Hello and welcome to the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean. I work for Hollywood Trust and today I am joined by Paul Gosling. Paul, great to see you again. Hi, Jared. So Forward Together is our podcast, our forward-focused conversations on four main issues, increasing the civic voice, how we go about that, creating a more shared and integrated society, dealing with the past and the constitutional questions. So four huge issues. And for this episode, Paul, you met with Father Martin McGill. Yeah, and it's worth putting on record that we had requested Martin to be interviewed for this series way before he actually achieved international fame Mm. off the back of his very touching address to Lyra McKee's funeral in Belfast uh, St. Anne's Cathedral. Okay. It's an interesting conversation that you have too with Martin. And when we're talking about the first issue of increasing the civic voice, he's saying it's really important to encourage people to play their part in civic society. Absolutely. And what I thought was one of the really interesting things that uh, Martin was saying, which is perhaps not what you expect a priest to be focusing on particularly, was the economic issues around uh, the way our society isn't working. Mm -hmm. And clearly he's very influenced by Lyra McKee's death in Cregan and the difficulties that the Cregan estate continues to have 21 years after the Good Friday Agreement. And he's saying, well, you know, part of the way that we should move forward is to have civic conversations about the economy. And actually, that comes down to something that no one else in this series has talked about, which is participatory budgeting, Mm. which is the way that communities, members of the communities can decide, discuss how they spend money in their local communities and how they can improve the economic welfare of their communities. When you move on then to talk about the shared and integrated society, Martin reinforces that people living side by side is really important, but he also talks about structural change needed to achieve that. Yeah, that's right. And he's saying, well, it looks at what's happened with integrated education, the way people are talking about integrated education, the way that there's this strong political pressure behind integrated education, yet there isn't the same weight behind integrated housing. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that you need a champion for shared housing, for integrated education, so, sorry, for integrated housing, in the same way that you have with integrated education. You know, we, we had this recent interview with Tina Merrin, on the educated, Integrated Education Fund. Yeah. And actually what Martin is saying, you need a similar champion to push for the principles of integrated and shared housing. Okay. Well, let's hear the conversation with Martin now. How do you think we can strengthen civil society in Northern Ireland? Well, um, I, I suppose there's a sense in which uh, we, all of us need to see that we have a part to, to play in this. I'm very conscious I'm part of a cross-community festival in Belfast and we're looking at planning festival number eight and one of the things that we want to do for next year's festival is to design something which really gives people a sense of we all have a part to play in this. So I suppose I might use the old cliche, politics is too important to be left to the politicians alone. So that whole sense of all of us having a part to play in that. So I, I think a sense of we strengthen it by the more that we can encourage people to play their part. And for me, that would be getting the likes of primary school into post-primary school, etc. In a sense, perhaps that reflects the fact that we've got a lot of people who don't vote. And the question then is how you engage people that are not, not within our segregated society of either voting for one of the two major parties. I suppose that would be one of my concerns, and I was thinking, um, and go back to the, obviously our recent elections there as well, and, and the large number of people who don't. But yes, it's it's a it's a genuine concern. 
And yet at the same time, when I'm talking to people, um, they, may, they may say they don't vote, but they're certainly very interested in civic life. They're very interested in the type of society they want. If they're parents, they, they're very clear in the sense of the sort of um, uh, place they want to come and live in, whether that's Belfast or Northern Ireland or Ireland or whatever you want to call here. So from that point of view, um, it's not a question of not interested at all. It's whatever has actually happened. And I think maybe some of the... Some of the difficulties, some of the, if I might call it inertia over the past number of years, it certainly hasn't helped that. I, I think sometimes that infighting amongst our politicians, again, doesn't really help that. So, I mean, to, to wrestle with the question, um, again, I suppose I'm going to go back right into the likes of schools and youth groups or whatever, and that whole sense of the empowerment and the involvement of, of young people, really, from a very early age and a real sense of we can make a difference. I think it's also important that people realise they can make a difference, that their views matter, uh, their opinions matter, and it's really important that we actually hear them. Um, again, I'm sort of focusing especially on young people. I, I don't like this idea of talking about young people as almost like uh, voters of the future or whatever. They're people in the present, they've got views in the present, and they're worth hearing at this stage. And we have the two major parties that are uncomfortable about elements of civic engagement who point out that one of the difficulties with the old civic forum was yes. that it wasn't representative. Yes. But in a sense, I suppose, one of the points that you're implicitly making is that there are areas in, uh, of decision-making which people don't necessarily as being, see being directly party political, but they still want to be involved in consideration about. Yes. I suppose I mean to go back, and I'm really glad that you mentioned the old Civic Forum, which to some extent really has gone off the, the radar in, in political life. For me, there was a huge value in that. Um, I mean, the whole idea of bringing people from a variety of different uh, backgrounds is really important. And I suppose I'm a regular tweeter, um, and I would often appeal to wider civic society. So I, again, the, the more that we can widen out this debate, the better. Um, and I suppose actually the more that we can see civic society really involved in this whole, whole process and hear their views, the better we are as a society. I suppose in terms of our, our, um, our politicians, I mean, there's a lot to be actually said from hearing, really, I suppose, also the wisdom of the years that people have been through so much that um, they, they'll have a wisdom that, that maybe the rest of us mightn't necessarily have. But perhaps there's also a wisdom of youth, you know, the, 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 the inexperience of not having been worn out with losing principles, perhaps. Uh, yes, and there's a, there's a real value as well. And again, I suppose if I go back to the likes of uh, Four Corners Festival, I mean, one of the events we do is with Ulster University and uh, just hearing some of the, the young young people actually speak. I'm going to a, a summer camp. I'm, visit, I'm taking part in a summer camp this Sunday afternoon. I think it's something like over 3,000 young people going to Summer Madness. The focus is faith, but yet there'll also be a sense of looking at the wider social issues as well. And I have no doubt that I will find their views and their openness um, very refreshing. So I suppose in terms of... Well, not just politicians, really for all of us. And, and again, from maybe bringing it into the level of church, again, the value of actually listening to such a range of views. And what's your view about the experience of citizens' assemblies in the South? 
Don't know very much about them, um, other than, I mean, I've followed a little bit around the whole question of the abortion debate. I don't know it well enough, but again, obviously, that's, um, that's I suppose, again, is trying to sort of widen that out. I, I think, in, in principle, there are, in essence, um, there's something worth exploring there, um, but but developing it here. And maybe some of the flaws in that, and I guess, again, those in the pro-life side of things, I think, had concerns about that. If there are flaws, if there's learning there, that that can actually be incorporated into whatever might be approached here. And I suppose, uh, yeah, I would be very keen that we, we look again at the whole question of some type of civic forum. And I suppose if one does look towards the Citizens, Experience, uh, Citizens Assembly model, then uh, Gordon Brown and Rory Stewart have both said that they think that it would have been a better approach in looking at Brexit before the referendum. Um, at the moment, we've got one uh, application in Northern Ireland, which is about social care. I mean, do you have thoughts about where they might be relevant? For the likes of? Northern Ireland. Oh, specifically? Yeah. I, know, and I interviewed Peter Sheridan uh, from Corporation Ireland, and he was talking about citizens' assemblies as being, for example, ways in which communities such as Cregan might look at how to reduce the influence of paramilitaries within a particular environment. Well, OK, I suppose I mean, that's, that's an issue that I, that I would be very concerned about. I mean, I'm part of a group called Stop Attacks Forum. So, yes, in terms of, I, I can see what he would talk about. Um, I suppose the difficulty with that one is that um, there's a real fear factor in that, whereas I think maybe some of the other issues before it comes to a, a, civic, um, a citizens' assembly, that uh, we might need something where we could hear voices, that sometimes people are, are reluctant to speak when it comes to that issue. But maybe if I um, maybe bring it into another area, um, which would be maybe say that the, the area of um, economics, how money is spent in certain areas, I think there could be a real value in actually hearing local people give some sense of how they would like to see some of the spending. That's I mean, a bit like participatory uh, budgeting, isn't it? Yes, it is, actually, and that's the sort of direction that I'm going in, actually. So, I mean, in the past, I would have known to spend the spend. So, yes, that whole sense of maybe of our local... If we take the likes of maybe, say, this part of West Belfast, that, um, again, bringing us together in some ways, I think could be a very useful way of actually helping us come together as a, as a as a as a larger group as a community I and mean, to go back to the the earlier question how do we build that sense of cohesiveness so we we as people who live in an area we will know the area we will know the issues best of all because we actually live in the area and more broadly how do you think we move towards creating a shared and integrated society Okay, well, I suppose a couple of things um, on that. Um, my background, um, I grew up uh, 14 miles from here, um, close to the international airport, uh, on a small farm. My brother still has it there. And uh, um, I grew up um, with living in a neighbourhood where uh, my next door neighbour, Presbyterian, further on down the road, Church of Ireland, and further, further down the road, Methodist. And, okay, we were various Christian denominations. But for me, in a sense, actually, go back to my childhood, and it's still we're still very mixed area in that my my home area, is um, people living side by side. I mean, for me, that's one of the most important things. Now, obviously, I'm aware. For example, is the Integrated Education Fund. Um, there's Council on Education, and we hear a lot about that. I hear nothing to the same degree on encouraging integrated housing and I really would like to see the likes of um, uh, integrated neighbourhoods. So where you're talking to me at the moment, for example, in West Belfast, the vast majority of people living in the area around me would be coming from Catholic, uh, Republican, nationalist uh, background. 
the, the sort of society I believe that we need to see for, for this city, Northern Ireland, Ireland, whatever, is where we can live together with our, our various uh, religions. And I will say religions rather than just simply faith, because it's not just simply going to be Christian denominations, but faiths generally. And, and those with faith and those without faith. But to get us living together, that for me would be um, one, of the, one of the key factors. My understanding is where there's been investment into proposed shared housing schemes, these have tended to be on interface areas where actually then they become battlegrounds for competing control by different paramilitary groups from different backgrounds, which doesn't seem to be a model that works very well. I mean, do you think that is the right way or, or should we focus on the e perhaps easier ways, which is city centre apartment buildings, which would naturally be more mixed? Interesting you would say that, and, and I suppose I'm, I'm thinking of, for example, maybe further out in North Belfast, yes, there was one particular uh, situation there uh, in the Newton Abbey area, so that that's, yes, certainly seemed to have got a, a lot of adverse publicity. But I'm also aware, for example, in, in um, further in, and um, not too far from, from the Antrim Road, where which was an interface in the past, and where uh, they've actually been able to take over I think it was an old mill and turned it into apartments and where um, integrated housing is working extremely well. I, I suppose maybe to some extent, and then to go back to the point I'm making about integrated education when there is a body for it, I suppose I think I would like to see a strategic body focusing especially on housing. And yes, maybe we do need to, to begin with some of the, the, the easier ones where we encourage that without it becoming social engineering. So perhaps we're saying, or perhaps you're saying, firstly, apartments are easier to deal with than housing and traditional housing estates, but also perhaps as a model for citizens' assemblies, a local citizens' assembly, about how that might work if it is on an interface area. Well, I suppose, I mean, to go back, and I, I just simply mentioned the whole area of the economics, but I, again, to go back to the likes of the citizens' assembly, it certainly would be good to, to do that. Now, I suppose the difficulty is when you have an area like this where we're primarily, as I say, from, from a certain section of the community, how do we do that in a way that will encourage others as well? Um, I, I suppose, I, I think I would like to see something more strategic and I, I think I would like to see what I'll call community champions of this. And I am aware of, of people who have um, purposely chosen to live in areas that wouldn't be necessarily their first choice. It's, I'm going to give you a theological term or a scriptural term, which is incarnation, that whole sense of purposely choosing to live in this area to really make a difference. And, and I would know of a number of people. I think we need more and more of that. And I suppose if I look, um, say, the likes of North Belfast, for example, where, uh, again, so many of the Protestant people have moved out of that, and it's had a huge effect on, on some of the local Protestant churches there. How do we encourage people to actually come back and look at that? The likes of a Citizens' Assembly, I think, may play a part in that. But so also with the likes of um, some sort of strategic body, obviously the housing association, the housing associations, the housing executive would play key roles in that. But again, with the likes of some of us from civic society. You, you sound as if you're speaking quite warmly about the principles of integrated education. That might surprise some people listening, given you know, your Catholic 
priest. But I suppose I'm, I'm acknowledging the fact that, um, you know, it has been talked about a lot. It, it gets regular um, coverage. And I'm, I'm acknowledging the fact that there's a real value in having a council for integrated education. I can see the value in that, etc. I, I suppose I'm, I'm conscious. I mean, I'm, I'm coming, I'm parish priest uh, in this parish here of St. John's. The school beside me, St. Kevin's, is an absolutely fabulous, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great Catholic school. Uh, so I suppose in some ways, I mean, I respect parental choice. Um, the parents who send their children um, to this school are doing so because they're, they're going to a very, very good school. Um, but I just see that the model that is used for the integrated sector, I think, can actually be used for integrated housing. If there is going to continue to be an integrated schools sector and there's going to continue to be CCMS and state schools as well, I mean, how can those different types of schools cooperate more and we also better mention the Irish medium as well of course, yeah, of course yes um, so I, I suppose one of the things is that I'm interested in the whole idea of shared education and that started to come on to the the the, the, um, the horizon over the, la- the last few years or so and certainly I mean some of the things that I've heard about it um, that, that that I find is very encouraging as well again I suppose I, um, I think there's a real value the more we can encourage the likes of schools uh, working together as, as closely as possible and I suppose um, the likes of uh, some of the examples in, in various places I mean I'm thinking of the likes of Ballycastle which is a, there's a very good model there at, at post-primary level and I'm sure various other examples as well uh, I'm also hearing very good examples of good cooperation at, at primary school level in various places too so I mean, I've heard criticisms of the shared school model in Scotland, where it's said that you know the, just co-locating doesn't necessarily bring the schools together. I suppose actually, for me, in some ways, I mean, I'm I'm going back again to the whole thing of neighbourhood. So when yes, um, so at the end of the day, yes, I, I'm a I'm a believer in parental choice. Um, I'm very committed to to Catholic schools. I mean, I've had such good experience with them over the years. But I am saying in some ways that it really has gone back to people living side by side. I mean, for me, at the end of the day, when I go back home, that, you know, I literally be bumping into my next door neighbour. I mean, for me, that's the, that's the way we really take things forward. And that whole definite sense of encouraging people to, to socialise at, at all sorts of levels. I mean, this conversation is about how we deal with the difficult challenges that our society is facing one of which is how do we deal with the past and the legacy of the troubles. I mean, how do you think we should approach that? Uh, one of the things um, that I've been wondering about um, is the role of churches in this. And in particular, um, just to think about some of those words, or one word especially would come to mind is the word sanctuary. So that's that whole idea of providing a safe place, uh, a place where people can go. And I'd wondered about the likes of uh, churches uh, being able to, you know, um, be open to have some of the the conversations. Not, not necessarily conversations, but also maybe to facilitate events where people would actually come and share their stories. And, and I've had a, a number of examples of that. And there is something different from going, say, the likes of City Hall or, or going to some other facility. There's something different, I believe, about going into a church, um, even the whole behaviour there changes. And that whole sense of being able to provide a place where people will actually be able to tell their stories. So if I think again, back to Four Corners Festival, we put on a number of events that will touch about the, the, the past. And this started for us a few years ago when we had the experience of Joe Berry and Pat McGee 
the Brighton bomb. Um, and the, the focus, of course, was on the two of them. But what happened afterwards, that acted as a catalyst uh, for people to come and tell their stories. They wanted to tell their stories. So that whole sense, first of all, of, of being able to be heard and um, that the value of other people hearing that story and trying to understand why people got involved in the first place, I think is really important. Just to interrupt for a second, in case sure. people don't know, Patrick McGee was one of the bombers in Brighton and Joe Berry's father was one of those who died in the bomb, just yes, okay. in case anyone listening doesn't follow oh, that. Thank you. And so, and alongside that, I was also, I also want to mention something else um, that I took part in last year. And that was with Reverend Chris Hudson. Um, he's the uh, minister, non-subscribing Presbyterian. He's the minister of All Souls Church in Elmwood Avenue. And in his church last year, uh, we had the reading, a solemn reading, alphabetical order of every single name um, of anybody who was killed in the Troubles from 1969 onwards as well. No commentary. Came from like Lost Lives, presumably. Lost Lives book. So we, we had it from the Lost Lives book. And uh, so there, there are events like that put, in, put into a church, I think in a different context, um, so that, and the, the focus we were, were wanted to have was on people suffering rather than going into the details of how this person died and was this person an innocent victim or a perpetrator or whatever it is. We instead focused on the whole question of people, the, the, the loved ones left behind, that irrespective of what he or she or they did, that inevitably people would be left to suffer as a consequence of their death. And one of the consistent themes of these conversations that I've been having have been about the need... To, to, to make sure that we understand that it was people who died and people who were injured, not just simply statistics, and the telling of these stories in order to try and spread the humanity of the experience as a warning, perhaps, to people not to return to violence. I suppose in many ways, uh, to go back to that event last year, there would be a sense of the two words, never again. So um, when I reflected on, on, on that event last year and hearing all those names... I had one regret about the night, and if it, if, it, if we're able to do it again, I would do it differently. And my one regret was that I wasn't there from the very start. Um, I had a pastoral visit to make. If I'd known the power of it, um, I would have rearranged that and tried to be there right from the very start. Because what was happening was wave after wave after wave of names coming. Some of the names familiar to me, many not. Some I'd completely forgotten. And it was just that impact and I suppose that whole sense of their stories plus all the stories of the other people as well. The more we can get a sense of the humanity of one another, the real difference it makes. And I'm really glad to hear that that's been brought out. And I think that as well as the fact that we need to know more about the stories of what happened, it's also important to put on record that while Lost Lives was an incredibly important and comprehensive record of what happened in the Troubles, there's also been stories being told in the recent past about the people who actually died as a result of the troubles but weren't included in Lost Lives. For example, uh, I, I witnessed a, a performance which included the story of a child who was on a pavement and who was knocked over by a Saracen as the army were escaping from a riot. And But that was not a child whose death was ever recognised as being part of the troubles. And there's also many, many, many other lives who were lost 
that are not recognised as being part of the Troubles, but whose stories are also very important to understand. I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, I think I was aware of, of that story as well. I, I suppose the more we humanise this, um, and I suppose that whole sense of the knock-on effects as well. So you mentioned that, but it's also the likes of the book. I think it's called Injured. Uh, where some of the stories, um, I, the WAVE organisation and, and WAVE as an organisation works with um, people affected by the troubles. I mean, last week, for example, they, they held the Day of Reflection event um, in, in Belfast, in, in, the, in the Belfast office over in the north of the city. And they, they are working with, with the people who have been left behind. So those who are physically injured, for example, again, can very easily be forgotten. And obviously all the families who have been left traumatised. And as you quite rightly say, the question of those who, who in a sense, may not be included in, in the Lost Lives book. And whose families feel that their deaths weren't acknowledged as part of the troubles. And I suppose you've touched on a very key word, and that's this whole question of acknowledging. How do we acknowledge that? And and when I talk about that, um, that will bring me back um, to uh, a point that I've, I've uh, struck me before, and I've, I've been. I, I think there's value in that, and the Reverend Harold Good's point about calling for a day of of acknowledgement, that it's that every now and again, um, it it features in conversation. So that sense of having a day where we acknowledge the part. Now, to some extent, the day of reflection provides a little bit of that, but it's, I think it's a different type of day in some ways where, where there's an acknowledgement maybe of, of some of the, the things that we, we didn't do well or we did badly, whatever it is. And I think there's a real value, in, as well as acknowledging the huge amount of suffering we caused and a sense of never wanting to go back to that. Is it possible to have that process of acknowledgement, though, without it playing into this other narrative of the hierarchy of victims that you know I mean that's that's one of the that's obviously one of the big concerns and I and I in many ways that seems to keep catching us up it keeps slow it keeps tripping us up I should say and uh, I, I, I really can't see us going anywhere I think we have to sort of move away from that and, and that's why again to go back to the event that we had last year the focus was on the human suffering those left behind and you simply can't do a hierarchy. It would be completely unethical to try and do any sort of hierarchy of victims and that. And personally, I find that a very, very unhelpful phrase, this hierarchy of victims. So perhaps the important thing is to acknowledge the pain of those left behind rather than necessarily focusing specifically on the deaths of those who died? Well, if I go to, I mean, I, I went to see Colin Davison's amazing exhibition, uh, Silent Testimony. The clues even in, in the word itself, or in the words itself, and then um, to describe it. And uh, it's just simply very, very basic details about uh, about the loved one and the, um, left behind. And it's, so it's that whole sense of uh, just the, the suffering of those people out to me. From memory, 18 of them, they've been affected somewhere along the line, so they didn't go into all the details of what happened to the loved one, all of them very, very brief. And that sense of the, the suffering there and of those who are... And, and there can't be a hierarchy of, of, of victims in that. I think there's there's something we can do in that. I'm glad you mentioned Colin Davidson because I was interviewing uh, Councillor John Carla, the PUP, yes. recently. And that was also one of the points that John made, that he felt that Colin Davidson's work had been very important in terms of personalising the grief and the pain and the injuries. And I suppose, actually, I mean, when I went to see the, the exhibition, and like so many other people, I was really taken with, with people's eyes, especially actually on 
and especially the way in which Colin had um, painted those. H- having also heard Colin speak as well, um, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it's definitely a sense of the personalization uh, of those left behind. And if I could go back again to the Wave event on the day of reflection, a uh, large number of people there um, for, for the event. There was a barbecue and then, then we moved into, uh, we had um, the evening introduced. We had a sharing of poetry, a mother whose son was, was murdered. And we also had um, Tommy Sands playing a lament and some other very, very moving pieces as well. But as I looked around the people there that night, it really struck me in some ways the amount of suffering there and seeing people there. And I, I didn't know they're all their different stories. There's people I would have never met before. And from one point of view, you know, I wasn't going to get a chance to do it that night. But I, I left, I left that night, last Friday night. I just got into my car and I, I, I just needed silence. I just needed time to think about the people that I'd met. So I normally would listen to the radio, Classic FM or whatever. Probably shouldn't advertise that. Um, and I drove back in silence because I needed that silence just to get some sense of the sheer awfulness of, of what they had been through. But one of the challenges is that people of our generation and yes. similar age can perhaps understand that and see that. But the question is, how does one influence teenagers perhaps that are susceptible, in particular to paramilitary influence, who perhaps won't be exposed to those yes. experiences and yes. therefore won't get that empathy yes. from those, that suffering? I mean, do you have yes. ideas about how that can be done? Well, um, uh, for one of the things and, and that, I, that I do want to go to, so when you talk about the likes of um, some of that younger generation and getting involved in, in some of the, if we use the term, paramilitary groupings, but let me, let me go back to the uh, Independent uh, Monitoring Commission report that was produced uh, last October. And uh, I think the second one's due out again in a couple of months' time. I mean, for me, there was something very significant about uh, some of the work it did, which it focused in on areas of social deprivation and areas of paramilitary-style attacks. And there was such a correlation between the two. So whenever I'm talking about the likes of, you know, how do we encourage young, how do we make sure that young people don't get caught up with that, etc., I think I would probably want to look at it from a more structural point of view before we actually sort of go into the other works, which is looking at some of the, the deprivation and how do we actually tackle some of that. You're in West Belfast with me at the moment. Um, there's a phrase that I've heard which I find very helpful. Not too far away from here uh, is the Divis area, and within Divis there's a street called Albert Street, which, which has, has known a lot of um, trouble. It's had a lot of uh, so-called joyriding and, and you know, other areas of, uh, issues of uh, antisocial behaviour. And one of the phrases that, that, that one person had heard say is, you know, unless the people on Albert Street will actually see the difference that the peace process makes to their lives. So unless we actually see this peace process start to address some of that in the likes of, whether it's a Craigan or West Belfast or, or whether it's the likes of, the, the, you know, parts of the Newtonard Road, you know, the Lower Newtonard Road, for example, or parts of the Shankill again. I mean, there's so many of those areas in this city and, and throughout Northern Ireland where there's issues that have to be involved. So I'd like to see some of that tackled, the likes of educational underachievement, for me, that and, and the likes of um, the value of some really good youth projects and funding those projects, for me, would be like some of the first ways I would start. That's an important point, but it's 21 years since the Good Friday Agreement. 
it was implied there would be a peace dividend out of that, but for deprived areas, there has not been a peace dividend. If it's not happened in 21 years, that's not going to happen quickly now, is it? It's not meant to happen quickly, uh, but at the same time, and, and obviously we're meeting today, the talks are still going on. Um, I certainly, for one, really are hoping that the politicians are going to stay at the table. In fact, I'd really love to see them really concentrate their efforts. We've been told they're, they're going to move to an intensive phase. And I suppose for me, that's one area where we really, really need them to be working so that, that they really can address some of these issues. You're right, it's, it's not going to be immediate, but it really does need to be a priority. And somewhere along the line, I mean, to use your phrase there, that um, yes, the peace dividend has to be seen in affecting those areas as well. Now, the other big difficult conversation is how we discuss the future of the constitutional settlement for Northern Ireland. How do you think we can have that conversation in ways that are polite, generous and not divisive and bring us back potentially to conflict? Yes, um, and I, 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 there's, there's such a value in that. Um, I suppose a couple of years ago as part of Fela, the, the West Belfast Festival, um, I helped put together an event that, that looked like, um, you know, how would a united ireland be able to address uh the the identity of those who, who identify as as british um and that was an event now that was in that was in west belfast it was in st mary's university college and, and we certainly did have some from a unionist background at it now as a knight it was grand and it certainly it was it certainly was a very very uh, civil conversation we had some of the the leaders of the the republican and nationalist parties at it for me, it's 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 finding um, the likes of events such as that, um, but there's probably quite a piece of work to do before we get to that point. And it's probably some of those smaller conversations that can actually do that. And again, I'll maybe go back to the likes of um, churches. Can they be part of that? You know, so that we can actually have a conversation in a way that's respectful. And I suppose from a church point of view, we really shouldn't be identifying. With this is the this is the um, state system that we want because we will you know at the end of the day we would see that our um, true loyalty is is to a greater kingdom which is the kingdom of God we would see so from that point of view we shouldn't really be having a vested interest in it oh it must be a United Kingdom or a United Ireland or whatever it is so in a sense again I would see uh, churches could actually help facilitate some of those conversations and to really do it in a way that's civil I mean we've heard a lot I think it's really from Declan Kearney and his uncomfortable conversations idea there's value in that this is a different type of conversation but it really and, and and to be able to do it in a way that's civic and respectful civil and respectful uh, and a few weeks ago i interviewed ken good while he was still yes bishop for the church of ireland for Derry and Raffo. and and his view was that the one of the important things that the churches can do is to have cross-denominational friendships and to be friends with their counterparts in other religions. I mean, is that something that you share as an approach? Well, I suppose, I mean, really right from the very start, and I suppose I would go back and, and come back to my childhood growing up where I grew. I mean, I think part of my DNA is to, is to be, uh, you know, uh, neighbourly, friendly uh, with those of other denominations. And, and when I talk about that, I mean, if I could mention, say, the likes of Alan McBride and, you know, his campaign of the good neighbours, uh, I can't stress that enough. Now, um, so maybe one of the things worth clarifying is we talk about um, inter-church 
or inter inter uh, faith. So um, the likes of the inter church. Um, that's the denominational relationships, that's Catholic and, and various Protestant denominations. Interfaith is becoming more and more important for us as we then have more and more uh, different people from different religions um, coming to settle here um, in Northern Ireland. On a final note, Martin, one thing I perhaps I, I shouldn't ignore is the fact that we initially requested to interview you yes. before you became internationally well-known over the Lyra McKee uh, sermon um, and how's that affected you? How, how's that experience affected you? Well, I mean, at the time, as was right from the very start, um, I was completely taken by surprise. Um, the reaction I got was in the middle of the sentence. I hadn't my sentence finished. And I hadn't sort of realised, um, it was probably really that evening that I began to realise, oh gosh, this has got quite a bit of attraction. And it's probably only really in the days afterwards that um, I then got a sense of um, just the impact of it. Um, so immediately afterwards, it was, it, it felt like almost like a tsunami of attention. I mean, letters, phone calls, emails, it just went on and on and on and on. Um, but now, um, I suppose one of the things is that, um, I'm very conscious that I wanted to make sure I was well grounded and I had to make a big effort to do that. I mean, I took a couple of days off to, you know, just try and make sure I was, I was okay with the midst of it. I was well supported with friends. But as, as things have settled down now, um, in, in many ways, it's, it really has um, given me uh, an opportunity uh, out of a really tragic situation um, to be able to speak into, into situations. And um, it, is, it has also convinced me I do not want to go into politics. Um, and I have to say, in a strange sort of way, it's given me a greater respect for politicians. Um, I mean, I had a huge amount of correspondence as I've been touching on, mostly supportive, but uh, some of it certainly not, and, and some of it, you know, completely wacky. So I'm thinking, gosh, what some of these politicians must get in their, in their mailbags must be just enormous. And the other thing is, in terms of, it convinced me I definitely didn't want to go into journalism. I couldn't, I couldn't do that sort of world of, you know, moving on from one story to the next story to the next story to the next story. So in some ways it's left me the greater respect for, for both politicians and, and journalists for the, for the worlds in which they live. I, I must admit I'm a bit disappointed that, the, that the, this initial sense of let's put the problems, let's resolve them, that momentum seems to have been lost and there doesn't seem to be the commitment on, on an ongoing basis to, to dealing with, you know, the, the, the problems that cause her to be murdered. Well, it's interesting you would say that, um, because I suppose in some ways is, um, I'm very conscious that I've, you know, I mean, the few days around it was the immediate interviews, and I was conscious I didn't want to get it caught up in a media circus, and I didn't want to be constantly sort of going out every single day, and so maybe that might have been part of uh, my reluctance to sort of, you know, come back to you until now. Um, but I'm also conscious now as the time has gone on and as we're heading towards the summertime and the possibility of a very difficult summer, there's, there's so much uncertainty around. We've obviously got the whole question of Brexit. We're moving into the marching season. The f issue of flags and banners and emblems and I, I suppose would concern me. So I, I think at this stage, I would want to see a real momentum again. And to some extent, I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity to sort of say, I really think that if we go back to the moment in the cathedral, focus not 
not not focusing on me, but in focusing in terms of the response that people actually had, both inside and outside the cathedral, and well beyond that, I think our politicians I really would encourage them, as I say, not to focus on me, not even focus on my words, but on focus on the response of people. There was something very telling. For me, um, again, to use another religious term, that was like a Kairos moment, a certain moment in time, and that needs, and I, I really do believe that that needs to be made the most of, and and to get that momentum back and that desire to what they're working on at the minute, that they get it across the line. I mean, so that we can start addressing the likes of those issues that I was talking about, to go back to the likes of the, the poverty and the economics. Uh, noticed earlier, uh, Paul McCusker uh, from North Belfast, he's a, he's a counsellor there involved with a project called Soup Kitchen in St. Patrick's, has talked about a tenfold increase in the likes of people coming for that. I noticed the likes of the number of people resorting to food banks. Really, I think we need that momentum there to get our politicians back to really see they address some of these issues and to really look at, to go back to an earlier part of the conversation, how the peace dividend can be seen as something that we can all enjoy, not just some of us, but all of us. Okay, that was Martin McGill there. Martin talks about the past, as, as all of our interviewees do, and he talks about the importance of humanising victims of the conflict. And I suppose it's humanising the people, that have, both those that have been killed and those injured as well. And the people left behind, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And he's talking, not for the first time, about Colin Davidson. And yeah. it, I do find these in, uh, conversations really interesting, Jared, in terms of the fact that you, know, you have certain themes that recur here. And one of the things that Martin is saying very strongly, which John Kyle also said to me very strongly, is the, is the principle of, of being able to see people as people. The people yeah. who died and the people who survived, the people with really life-changing, terrible injuries, that we need to face up to the, the pain that they've had, the pain of the victims, and we need to personalise this. And this is something that Philip Gilliland was also talking to us about in a recent conversation, that actually, you know, the way that Colin Davidson has, has portrayed people living with terrible disabilities is actually really important for us as a society to recognise what has happened mm. during the Troubles. Acknowledging that dignity, for sure. And acknowledgement was one of the key words that Martin used. You know, we need to acknowledge, we need to acknowledge the pain and suffering of people who have survived, those who've died, and the families of those who've died. Okay. He also talks about the correlation, uh, the well-acknowledged correlation between continued paramilitary activity and deprivation. Absolutely. And, you know, we, it's 21 years after and people thought that the Good Friday Agreement was going to come with a peace dividend. Mm. Whereas you go to somewhere like the Cregan or you go to somewhere like the Nittenhouse Road, Shankill Road, Falls Road, where Martin's based, you don't feel that there's any real peace dividend. Yes, we've got some people who've done very well out of the way society has changed in recent years. You go around Belfast, you see lots of cranes going up. Yeah. You've got lots of well-paid jobs in some of the, the developing sectors. But actually, for lots of people, there's no improvement in their lives. And if there's no improvement economically, that means there's no improvement socially. And that means that we're not actually breaking through to a new future. Moving on to the constitutional question, Again, like so many others before him, he talks about the need for conversations, both on the smaller scale and the, and the public scale, to be held on what United Ireland might look like. Yeah, and, and again, like many other interviews, he's saying that this has to take place within civil society. We yeah. need this civil conversation about the constitutional future. And I think that's a really important message to take from what Martin said. And 
must be said as well, you did ask him about Lyra McKee and the reaction that he got. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, Martin quite, you know, honestly has become an international figure off mm. the back of the terrible murder killing of Lyra McKee. And, and Martin talks about the fact, you know, what that's meant to him becoming famous. And he says that he's felt the need to, to step back and to reflect on that. So, you know, um, I mean, Martin is a very, very interesting man. Hmm. Well, thanks to Martin for taking the time to have that conversation with us. Keep an eye out for future episodes of the Forward Together podcast through hollywelltrust.com, sluggerotool.com and wherever you get your podcast at. So thanks again to Martin. Thanks to our production team of Dee Kern, Emer Doherty and Jacqueline McKay for their support. And thanks for listening. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.